A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. The global threat posed by the coronavirus has escalated quickly over the last week with 213 deaths and nearly 10,000 confirmed cases, including 62 so far reported in 20 countries outside China. Other regions are waiting for their first reported incidents of the disease. Italy, for example, has declared a state of emergency, and the World Health Organization has declared the situation a world public health emergency. Travel and flight bans have been extended and countries, including New Zealand, are evacuating their citizens from affected areas as best they can. So what did we get wrong about the disease? How best to cope with it now? Dr Chris Smith, consultant virologist at Cambridge University and one of BBC Radio 5 Live's Naked Scientist, is back with us for an update. Hi, Chris. Hello, Kim. Why does the the virus seem to be spreading so quickly now? Well, I think there are several aspects to this. One is that the reality always precedes the figures because when the virus was first detected, it had already spread a bit. And so that process is always going to be one step ahead of the testing and then the reporting. So there's always a bit of a lag in the reporting. That's part of it. The other part of this is this is an emerging infection. As such, none of the world population is immune to this thing. So therefore, there's a reasonable chance that everyone could catch it if they come into contact with someone who's got it. And so the more cases you get, the more chances there are for the virus to spread, the more rolls of the dice, if you like, and therefore you would expect it to climb in an almost exponential way. And the figures we have at the moment suggest that the reproductive number, the R0 value, which everyone's talking about for this agent, is about two, which means that for every case that we see, we see about two new ones. Because, in other words, each person who's got it gives it to two other people. They generate two new cases. And so therefore you would expect the, the graph to increase and the gradient of the graph to increase exponentially to a peak point, at which point you get peak virus. And then it'll begin to fall again as various control measures step, kick in. And also as the number of people who are potentially infectable begins to fall. That r naught figure of two doesn't sound too terrifying. I mean, measles was many, many times more than that, isn't it? Measles is between 12 and 20. Measles is ridiculously infectious. And that's why measles is such a threat. And so, yes, you're right. A number of between two and three, which is what we're speculating this is at the moment, and why I use that cautiously, is that obviously the way we compute these values is we ask, right, for every case we've got, how many new cases did it get? Or did did we drum up? And 
in order to compute that figure, you have to get large amounts of data. Now, at the moment, we've only got limited data, and we've got limited data in one geography, in one particular situation. And it may well be that as we see this thing spread further and we get more fine-grained data, that figure will be revised. But at the moment, it looks like it's somewhere between two and three. And to give you a comparison, a bad flu year might be, say, a four or a five, as in a pandemic flu. And SARS was probably of the same sort of ilk. It was probably about one or two for SARS, which is why we stamped out SARS relatively quickly as well. So I'm optimistic that this is not going to spread like bilio, but it's still going to grow. It spread more quickly than SARS? Well, it certainly has. Uh, SARS, we think, peaked at about 8,000 cases. And admittedly, that is with a handful of salt because that was also based on data provided by China. And we don't know whether or not China gave us all the facts about SARS because they held on to the fact that SARS was happening for about six months before we found out about it. So there may well have been some filtering of that data. They've certainly come to the party and come clean about what's going on much sooner with this present outbreak. So we can be more confident that the data probably are reliable. Um, But obviously time's going to tell. But the death rate from SARS appears to be much higher, over 10%, correct? Yeah, that's absolutely the case. With this one, based on the numbers we have so far, probably about 2 or 3% mortality rate at the moment. And that compares with about 10% for SARS, the severe acute respiratory syndrome, and another relative, which is a virus very similar to SARS, but which is called the Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome coronavirus, MERS-CoV, which we first identified back in 2011, 2012. And this is also a bat virus. It, it's actually in camels, and it jumps from camels into camel owners, by and large, that has a much higher fatality rate of something like 35%. So we're lucky with this one that whilst it has the ability to spread better than either of the aforementioned, it appears to be less lethal than they are. Just talking about this r naught number for a moment, and there seems to be a great deal of variability about what it is. There was one group in Britain which initially published a value of 3.8 as the r naught, in other words, 3.8 people for every single person infected. Uh, would contract it. They revised it downward. But in the meantime, and I'm just reading this in an Atlantic article, some observers seized upon the 3.8 number and one Harvard doctor described it as a thermonuclear pandemic level bad in a, <laughs> yeah, in a tweet. Right. Dr. Ding, wasn't it? Was that Dr. Ding? Who, who Was his name Ding? And it's a dubi- he certainly made a ding, it's a ding a, dong on Twitter. It's a dubious interpretation. Do you agree? Oh, oh, I think the fact that he's deleted those claims, he's removed the tweets since then, I mean, speaks would, for itself. You would think that I, a I doctor think it was an overinterpretation. Know, yeah, you would think a doctor would know better than to go off tweeting half-cocked like that, wouldn't you? Uh, well, I'd hope he'd be a bit more cautious, and I think he, he has gone on the record as saying he regrets some of the word choices he used. Haven't we heard that? before um but yes it's not quite as high as that it's probably a bit lower and certainly that doesn't constitute a thermonuclear virus if if such existed it wouldn't be anyway um so no i I think it's it's a cause for concern it's definitely cause to not be complacent it's not cause for alarm and last week you thought that it was uh okay for the world health organization not to declare the situation a world public health emergency 
now they have. Are you happy with the timing of everything? Yeah, I mean, last week, what data were we sitting on? We had predictions of between 1,700 and 3,000 cases. That was our present prediction. And the deaths that we had were fewer than 100. And we weren't clear whether or not this was going to spread much further within China. Fast forward to this week, and we're looking now at the best part of 10,000 cases. China are following up nearly 100,000 contacts of cases and contacts of contacts. And we have a death toll which has more than doubled over what we had last week, but still remains relatively low. So the fact that this appears to be having the ability to spread in this way is what has alarmed people and has told them that that there is actually going to be a, a difficulty in in controlling this within one particular geography it's it's inevitable this is going to spread much further than the province it was in which it has across china which it has and then get into other countries which it has but then the other point is that we're quite concerned it's going to get into the third world and the difference between a first world and a third world manifestation of this there's no vaccine and there's no drug so that's not the difference the difference is the health infrastructure it's what we can do for people who are vulnerable to it and may catch it that's one thing but it's also the fact that with no health infrastructure and no decent reporting and testing the real area under the curve how many cases there really are where it's going monitoring it and therefore controlling its spread is going to become that much harder and i think that is why the who are now escalating their game plan and saying well you know based on the data we're revising our stance on this and we've upgraded it that's indeed what they seem to indicate was behind the decision but in hindsight do you think that it would have been a good idea to make it a public health emergency and an international emergency earlier? I don't think it would have made a blind bit of difference, if I'm honest with you, because it certainly hasn't changed my view of what's likely to happen. It wouldn't have changed the way that we in Britain, for example, and sitting as I do in, in, in various committee meetings and things to discuss this, it wouldn't have changed our thinking at all if the WHO had said this. It probably would have made more headlines. It probably would have made people more scared more soon. But I'm not sure it would have actually changed the preparedness in first world countries like New Zealand and like the UK. Last week, you were very dismissive of masks. You said spend your money on something more useful like a beer. Are you, <laughs> are you sticking with that? OK, you're getting on a plane in China and you're going to and you're going to fly somewhere a long way away. Would you not put a mask on? No, no, the the. To be clear, I was dismissive of the kind of cheap and nasty masks you buy off the guy on the street corner who got them for tuppence for a million and then sells them to you for $10 a mask. That's what I'm dismissive of because those are useless. They're the kind of thing that you lay loft insulation or sand down your shelves in your kitchen with just to keep the dust off. They are not useful as a defence against infection. Those sorts of masks leave enormous gaps around the edges. You could poke your fingers in the side where, where a cat would have its whiskers. Those are big gaps that when you breathe out, that blows out an aerosol of particles, including any viruses you've got out the side. And when you breathe in... It draws air in through there as well, unfiltered. Also, if you hold those masks up to the light, you can see through them. 
to a virus, which is one ten thousandth of a millimetre across. That's that's a that's a, a gap the the size of the St Lawrence Seaway. I mean, it's absolutely huge. <laughs> so they're not going to do you any good. And the evidence we have is that pretty quickly they dampen anyway. So the viruses just go leaching through the holes in in the dampness as you breathe mm. out. So I I rather flippantly, but I think it's accurate. Said. Uh, go and have a beer because a beer will give you equivalent protection probably to one of these masks and it'll probably be more fun and better value for money. I stand by that. But if you go and get one of the decent hospital masks, if you know the, the masks we use which we say have been fit tested where they make a proper seal around your nose and mouth and also complement that with eye protection because this is the people the thing that people forget you need the eye protection as well then you're protected those masks really do work and they are effective because the, the, virus... the eyes come in <gasps> the virus can get in through your eyes yes there are two two things to consider here some viruses and the flu is a good example of this some viruses do infect the cells on the front of your eye and so when you get a bad dose of the flu adenoviruses are also a classic one for this and measles you know we often say look out for a kid who's got measles you'll see a very miserable kid with a red rash and sore eyes the virus can actually infect the cells on the front of the eye so even if you protect your nose and throat your eyes could get infected so the eyes have it you could say now that's one thing the other is that your eyes are connected to your nose because if you look in the mirror and look along your lower eyelid you'll see right where the lower eyelid meets your nose there's a little black dot and that is a punctum which is the plug hole for tears so when you cry the tears go across your eye and then they're draining down that hole into your nose which is why when you cry your nose runs but if you've got viral infection on your eyes or viruses land on your eyes or someone's body fluids hit your eyes or someone coughs in your face or sneezes at you or you walk into a cloud of someone's sneeze which in public you we frequently do that's how these viruses spread they're going to land on the eye and they're going to go down in your nose and even if you've touched something and got them on your fingers and then you rub your eye you're rubbing the viruses into your eye and they'll infect your eye or go down into your nose so that's why it's very important to have eye protection when defending yourself against these sorts of infections now oh. coronaviruses i'm not sure whether they will infect the tissue on the front of the eye but they'll certainly be washed down into your nose where they could infect you so you need to do both if you're going to go the whole hog you've got to do it properly something in for else penny, to worry about never ever thought about the eyes <laughs> mask the eyes do you have any idea, and I know this is guesswork, but based on your experience, your knowledge of SARS and other epidemics, how long it would take for the outbreak to run its course? Does the R0 number lead us to any conclusion? You can model this kind of thing. And with SARS, it took about three months from the time we knew about it for it to have fizzled out. And that was with a united international effort to stamp it out and a virus that was less transmissible than the one we're looking at now. So with this, we're earlier to the party. We have got a more easily spread agent. Well, so with that in mind, it may well be that it could be three months before this thing f finishes, or it might take longer. It might take six months. I think the critical thing is, though, we're not looking at forever right now, but this could mutate and adapt itself into into such a state that it becomes endemic in humans. It it could become a new human coronavirus. I'm speculating wildly here, but it could. In the same way that we have human coronaviruses that circulate all the time and they cause colds in wintertime, it could join that family and become one of those that we, we seasonally just keep passing on. And uh, as a result, it, it will probably become a bit less nasty for humans because viruses tend to adapt like that. 
but it's too early to speculate at this stage what the, the likely trajectory is going to be. Looking at the graph today, it's a very steep curve upwards. It's, it's an exponential graph upwards at the moment. So I think we've got a way to go yet. Given the level of the virus infection in China, would you, if you were head of the world, stop flights out of China? I think it's too late, if I'm honest, because if you froze time now and counted up how many people are on aeroplanes right now around the earth, that number is about a million. And those people are heading all over the world and there are countries all over the world with lots of people passing through them and lots of countries that have had people arrive in those countries have already got cases of this virus that they have detected. Now, if they've detected it, that's one thing. But if they've detected it, it means it's in the country and there is the potential, it's not a given, but there is the potential for those people to have handed on that virus to somebody else when they arrived. So therefore, we've already got such a lot of flux around the world. I think that the most likely scenario with this is there's an enormous what we call clinical iceberg where you have a little bit of the iceberg visible above the water and that's what we know about, that's what we can see but hidden under the waterline is this enormous burden of infection which much of it may be asymptomatic but getting the true scale of this, that's where the testing comes in and that's where the modelling will, will be informed by as we go in. I think the next week coming, that's going to be really telling to work out how big that clinical iceberg is and that will tell us how far this thing has spread. Flying... Very, very difficult because I, th I think the, the horse has already bolted and it's very, very difficult now to, to do this. I, I think really the impact of that at this stage is not going to be that, that impressive. Is the coronavirus unusual in that it can often produce no symptoms as far as we know and yet somebody can still be infected and can transmit it? And even if they do have symptoms, they can transmit it before those symptoms show? Yeah, I think this is a slightly academic point that's that's um that's surfaced here. Right. The thing with any infection is that there's a range of symptoms. And some people will catch a cold and they won't be very symptomatic. Others can be very symptomatic. And there's a range of reasons why that happens. But one of the common ones is that if you've had that virus before, you're relatively protected against it. It may be a, a, a mild variant away from the thing you've had before, so you've got partial immunity to it. And this definitely happens with the flu, for example. People were asked in one study, have you had the flu this winter? And about half the people said no. When they took blood from those people and looked in the bloodstream for antibodies against the flu, they found that um, a very significant proportion of those people who said, nope, I haven't had the flu actually had. Now those people hadn't got demonstrable flu symptoms but had you gone and swabbed them you would have recovered flu virus from them. You would have recovered a lot less flu virus from them than someone who was having really heavy duty symptoms because basically the more symptoms you have the probably the higher the level of infectivity. So if you were to look hard enough with the sorts of sensitive techniques we've got you could probably I would say it's almost certain you could recover virus of this new virus from a person from the get-go. Very, very quickly after infection, you could recover virus from them. And the amount of virus you could recover from them would increase day by day as their symptoms increased. They would then peak, and as the immune system kicked in and started to, to knock back the virus, those 
symptoms would subside and the amount of virus recovered would subside. So to say that someone can shed this without having any symptoms, yes, they, they could, but are they shedding enough virus to actually increase the likelihood that they'll give it to somebody? Because to catch something, you have to have an infectious dose. That means giving someone enough viruses that, that you've guaranteed that they're going to catch it. And that is directly proportional to how much virus you're shedding. So as a general guide, if you have symptoms, you're probably infectious. If you don't have symptoms, you're much less likely to be. And, and so I think it's a slightly academic point. And at the moment, we, we don't really know because we haven't studied enough people to know exactly how infectious people are in line with their symptoms yet. But my idea of the virus is that it's some kind of um, highly opportunistic and efficient organism. So why would somebody have either the flu virus or indeed the coronavirus but not fall ill? Why wouldn't the virus multiply in their system? Well, what happens is you've got to think of it as a numbers game. When you're first infected with one of these viruses, a very small number of viruses probably manage to successfully infect you. And for something like norovirus... It's as few as 10 viruses is all you need to get infected. But that means you're only going to infect between 1 and 10 cells in your body to start with. Now, that 1 to 10 cells, they're going to make millions of new virus particles, admittedly. But initially, you've got one tiny part of, of your body infected with the virus and you're producing a trivial amount of virus. But very quickly, it's going to spread to other cells nearby because the, turn, the turnaround time for making a new virus in cells may be a day or so or maybe 12 hours to 20 hours to, to make a, complete the cycle and make new viruses and then leave the cell and infect more cells. So it's going to climb very quickly from a very small beginning, from a tiny acorn, if you like, into a giant oak tree of an infection. That's going to happen very quickly over a number of hours to days. But when you first start with that process, there's not an appreciable amount of virus there, and it climbs. As it climbs, it infects more cells. As it infects more cells, it triggers a bigger immune response. And as you trigger a bigger immune response, so you become symptomatic because your immune system is giving you the symptoms of the infection because the immune system is producing various signals that, A, call in a bigger immune response and encourage the immune system to gear up more, and it's telling other cells nearby, put yourself into lockdown, rather like uh, Wuhan City, and make yourself resistant to virus attack and that produces the symptoms of an acute viral illness aching muscles a temperature feeling very tired achy joints not feeling at all well those are your immune system making you feel like that and so you can use those symptoms as an index of how advanced the infection is and therefore probably how infectious you are but have i have i misunderstood uh, you seem to indicate that people could be tested, show evidence that they have had the virus, but never fell ill. So why would the virus not have exponentially increased and taken over and prompted your immune system to make you sick in those individuals? Well, I think there's a couple of aspects to this. In, in one example I gave, which was the flu, yeah. people can catch the flu in a given season and not have overt symptoms because they have partial immunity to the flu. And this is because they've encountered a very similar form of the flu in the past. So when they catch it, their immune system has a head start over, say, someone that had never seen the flu. So they really quickly gear up, tool up 
and they fight it off. And they would just write off that flu infection as I felt low for a couple of days. Whereas someone whose immune system has never seen the flu, they have no head start, they have to develop full bone flu, their immune system's playing catch up and they feel really grotty for a week. Now, when we can contrast that with the present situation, it's very unlikely anyone in the population has already got immunity to this new virus. So they're going to catch it, but some people are going to get a much more severe manifestation than others. Why might that be? Well, the people who get a very severe manifestation could be people who are older, people who have pre-existing health conditions that mean they are in less than tip-top condition. So they're less able to defend themselves, and perhaps they get, therefore, a faster progression of their infection. Another possibility is that in someone who has a really healthy immune response, the virus comes in, triggers an immune response, and the immune response they get is so overwhelming that it actually causes even more damage to you than it does to the virus. And this is precisely what happened in the 1918 flu pandemic, because the people who died, there was a big overrepresentation of people in their 20s, 30s and 40s who should arguably have been the healthiest specimens in society and they succumbed to the flu because their own immune system reacted so violently to that flu strain that it damaged their lungs and they effectively asphyxiated the you know the same thing could be happening here all right how far away are we do you think chris from an effective vaccine well i think there's some good news here but only sort of the the bad news is there is no vaccine at the moment the good news is that the MERS coronavirus, which I mentioned when we first began talking, this Middle Eastern Respiratory Syndrome virus, because we've had a bit of experience with that and we know it's quite nasty and it does lead to the deaths of about one in three people who catch it, there's been some effort to develop a vaccine for that. And back in October of 2019, a paper was published showing a test or a pilot vaccine made using a, a piece of DNA. This is a so-called DNA vaccine. And what you do is you take the genetic code that encodes part of the coat of the virus and you take that piece of genetic information and you inject that into the body. The body reads that genetic code, turns it into just the outer coat of the virus to reveal to the immune system what the virus would look like for real were you to encounter it for real and you then make an immune response. Now it was a pilot study and it was just initially testing the idea but it did produce a def uh, appropriate defences when they tested it. Now because these two viruses are so similar I would say it's reasonably that's well, a reasonable prospect to take that technology that's led to that MERS-CoV vaccine and translate this to this new Wuhan city coronavirus, this 2019 NCOV virus, and apply the same approach. The problem is it takes months to make a vaccine. You've got to do it, prove it's safe, prove it works, and then produce it in appreciable quantities and then get it into people. Because vaccines work best not when you're playing catch-up, but when you're ahead of the infection, protecting people before the virus gets near them. And unfortunately, in this case, we're a bit late to the party with that. Um, a listener called Cindy, who's clearly impressed, Chris, with your expertise, um, gives you the casting vote on whether she... Oh, thanks, Cindy. ...whether she should book her flights to a conference in Shanghai in May. She asks me to ask you, what are the chances of it going ahead? Someone asked me a very similar question yesterday, um, going on holiday to Vietnam via Singapore. 
And all we could say was, at the moment, we really don't know how this is going to play out because we don't know if airlines are going to continue to fly to some of these venues at the moment, let alone uh, consider the risk to the people they take to and from them and whether countries will allow people to come and go between those venues in, in the future. So at the moment, I would actually ask the airline because at the end of the day, they're the people that are, have got the most to lose because they're going to have to cancel the flights and lose the business. So they will have taken a lot of advice from a lot of people who are looking very closely at this data and will be very, very familiar with what's going on in country. So I, I would advise talking to the airline and asking them and also making sure you've got in good insurance that, that will cover the eventuality that the, the, the trip could get canned, but also will get you home if you get unwell. Essentially, Cindy, Chris has no idea. Thank you, Chris. Uh, people... uh, uh, that sums it up. <laughs> um, what about the screening? We know that thermal imaging, and you addressed this last week, thermal imaging is not terribly effective because, you know, you have to have somebody who is infected right then and there um, because they probably wouldn't have got on the plane if they weren't feeling well. Do you know what I mean? So how would you screen, mm. if at all? Well, uh, just to summarise, when we catch any kind of infection, it produces an immune response. And this leads to the production of what are called pyrogens, which are chemicals that drive up your immune response, that, that drive up your body temperature. And also some infecting organisms also release into the bloodstream chemicals that also have that effect. So temperature is quite a sensitive measure of someone being infected. But anything, a splinter in your bum, will, if you get an abscess there, is going to drive up your temperature. It doesn't mean you've got this particular infection. So it's a blunt instrument. And it's also a bit like shutting the stable door after the horse has bolted because once the time, once you've got a high temperature, you've already got a serious infection of some kind or another. And what we would want to know is who is incubating this. Now, what we're doing at the moment to test people are nose and throat swabs and also some blood tests. Now, the nose and throat swabs, what you do is you pass a swab into the nose and into the throat, the clues in the name, and those rub off some of the cells and the material from the mucous membrane that lines the nose and throat. We send those to the laboratory where we use various detergents and chemicals to bust open the cells and extract the nucleic acids which are there. And if the virus is growing in the nose and throat, its genetic information will be in there. We can extract that and then we use the polymerase chain reaction to copy the genetic information and then probe for the presence of a unique signature piece of genetic information corresponding to this virus. But this presupposes that we can get a good pickup from the nose and throat in people who are incubating this agent. Now, we have seen evidence in the cases so far that actually the amount of carriage in the nose and throat is quite low and it's mainly going down in the chest. So we might miss some people. So at the moment, that's why people are investigating things like blood samples as well and, and the relative sensitivities of nose and throat swabs as they correspond to different phases of the incubation period so we can answer these sorts of questions. So at the moment, very much the, the, the field is open. That's no help at airports, though, is it? You need to have something there and there Not really. To say, this is the problem. Yeah. Mm. So... There's no well, way you of can course, control well, what it. What we can deploy at the problem, though, well, well, what we can deploy at the problem, Kim, is is the history, which is what we're using in many countries, New Zealand, the UK. What people are doing is is looking at 
whether you've been in a risk geography. Number one in the case definition is, have you been to Wuhan City within the last 14 days of your symptoms starting? Because we know the maximum incubation period for this thing at the moment is documented at 11 days. So if you take 14 days, you're covered for um, a safety margin. And if people have been in the right place at the right time, and they then present with some symptoms, then we're using that as our filter at the moment. But I suspect this is going to change. And as we learn more, and the group of nearly 100 people who've now been flown back to Britain and just landed today and have now been put into a hospital near Liverpool in the northwest of England, um, they're going to be very interesting, those people, because if there are some cases among them, the way that they're being quarantined and studied is that we will begin to be able to answer some of these questions because these people will only have been allowed on the plane if they were asymptomatic when they left China. So if they do manifest the infection, it'll be subsequent to this and we'll be able to see how quickly the infection comes up, how it presents and which of these markers are the most useful ones. So I hope no one does succumb, but if they do, they'll be extremely useful to to guiding how we pursue this thing. Thanks so much, Chris, for joining us again. Chris Smith is a virologist at Cambridge University.